Well, we are continuing in a series that we're calling Follow. And so what you may have noticed throughout this year as we started 2023 uh, was that we have intentionally had a focus on discipleship. We've intentionally had a focus on discipleship from the beginning of the year, and that's going to be our focus for the entire year. We're going to be focusing on discipleship, and uh, more importantly, in that focus of discipleship, we also have specific focuses on prayer and on missions. And we started off the year taking a look at three relationships discipleship. We started talking about how discipleship occurs in the setting of our relationship with the church, our relationship with God, and our relationship with the world. And now we're going to continue on in that look of discipleship in a series we're calling Follow, How to Be a Disciple. So if you were to think about this like in school terms, uh, the first series, Three Relationships, was like Discipleship 101. Now we're in Discipleship 201, and we're going to take a further look at discipleship today. What we've been doing, <laughs> what we've been doing in that is we've been taking a look at the book of Mark to kind of guide us in that. And so Josh started the series last week, and he started with Mark chapter 9, and we're going to actually continue to take a look at Mark chapter 9 uh, today. And what happened last week is that Josh talked about the priority of a disciple. Today we're going to talk about the flavor of a disciple, the flavor of a disciple. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Mark chapter 9. If you're using one of the Bibles here at Calvary or in Quakertown, uh, it's on page 690. Now, if you're here in Sourton or if you're in Quakertown and you don't own a Bible, uh, take it. It's our gift to you. It's free. We believe that the Bible is filled with life-changing truth, and we want you to have a copy of that. So take it home with you. Quakertown, they're in the back of the room. They're on the carts. Uh, just get up and go and get it, or you can raise your hand and Usher will bring one to you. Uh, now, before we jump into reading from Mark chapter 9, and I just kind of get a kind of a, a taste, no pun intended, of this concept of flavor, flavor of a disciple, I do have a question for all of you. Uh, how many of you in the morning, part of your regular routine, uh, drink coffee from Wawa? Yeah, yeah, a few of you, I know, because when I go in there in the morning, the lines are long with all of you clogging the lines. I don't drink coffee, but my wife does, and occasionally I will go get her coffee, and she has a specific way where she wants her coffee. 24-ounce cup, 75% filled with Colombian blend, 25% filled with French vanilla creamer. <laughs> That's her coffee. That's what she wants, and sometimes I'll go, and she's a teacher, a kindergarten teacher, and I'll, I'll get it for her, and I'll bring it to her uh, so that she can have her coffee, and she gets really happy whenever I do that. Well, one day, I went into Wawa to get her some coffee, and I got distracted because they had a new flavor, maple harvest. It was supposed to be like French toast or something. I don't know, and I was like, ooh, that looks interesting. And so I went, and instead of getting Colombian blend, I got maple harvest blend. French vanilla creamer, 75%, 25%, we're all good. I'm all excited, I'm going to bring it to her, I give her the coffee, and usually when I give her the coffee, she just drinks it, and she's like, and she smiles at me, and she's like, thank you. I give her this coffee, and she goes, what is this? <laughs> I'm like, it's coffee. She goes, no, this is not coffee, what is this? I'm like, well, it's maple harvest flavor. And she says, that is not the flavor of coffee that I drink. And what happened there? My intent was good. My intent was like, hey, I'm going to go bring her coffee. And oh, this looks nice. I'm going to give her something new. And my intent was good, but the impact was bad. Why? Because it was the wrong flavor. 
It was the wrong flavor. You know, when it comes to being the church, when it comes to being a group of disciples, we can have good intentions. But sometimes our impact may be bad because our flavor is wrong. Our flavor is wrong. And so we're going to take a look at the flavor of a disciple today. Uh, And we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 9. We're going to start with verse 42. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. Some loving words from Jesus. (laughs) In this passage that we're reading today, actually, there's a lot of hyperbole that Jesus uses. There's a lot of actually strong, drastic, dramatic pictures that Jesus uses in this passage. And they're pretty intense. They're pretty intense. But what we need to understand is while these pictures are intense, they're not even close to the reality that they're meant to portray. Jesus is using these intense pictures to get across an intense message. And what we need to understand when it comes to the flavor of discipleship, the flavor of a disciple is that we need to have a flavor that attracts. We need to have a flavor that attracts that doesn't repel. Well, let's take a look at what Jesus is talking about in this first verse. What's a millstone? What's a millstone? Well, if you look at the picture on the screen, a millstone is this big stone that was used to ground grain. It was so big that most of the time, a human wasn't able to to push it. Most of the time, they had to use an animal like a donkey or horse to kind of move that stone around so that it would grind the grain. Jesus is saying that it would be better for you to have one of these millstones tied around your neck if you were going to lead one of his little ones astray, to lead them to stumble. Jesus is saying it'd be better for you to be sleeping with the fishes than to actually do that, than to, 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 if you were going to do this and cause one of my little ones to stumble. What he's saying is that God takes this so seriously. The wrath of God is so serious and causing one of these little ones to stumble, that this horrific picture doesn't even compare. doesn't even compare to God's wrath with that. But who are the little ones? Who are the little ones that Jesus is concerned about, of us leading them to stumble? Jesus isn't talking about children in this verse. He's not talking about children in this verse. In fact, if you were to go and read the chapter, you'll see uh, that Jesus is talking about earlier in this chapter about coming to Jesus, coming to God with this faith of a child. Jesus is talking about new believers. He's talking about new followers of Jesus. He's talking about new disciples. He's talking about people who are young in their faith. And what he's saying is, you, as a mature disciple, as a disciple who's been a Christian for a longer time, if you are the reason that they are not attracted to Jesus, but you are the reason they're actually repelled away from Jesus, then this is a serious issue. This is a serious issue. He's saying, do not cause one of them to stumble. Do not cause one of them to be prevented from acting in Jesus' name. Do not repel them from Jesus with your flavor. The flavor of a disciple is meant to cause others to draw closer to Jesus, not move them farther away. And as I was 
contemplating what that looks like. What does it look like to, to be a disciple that causes another younger disciple to stumble? I was kind of trying to wrestle with that. And obviously, you can kind of come up with some like scandalous, sinful actions. And, and then that can, that can be like, oh, that's what you must mean by stumble. And while that's true, I don't think that's what was going on in this passage. You see, what happens earlier on is that Jesus is dealing with hearts filled with pride. The disciples actually early on in this chapter are walking on the road and they start arguing with each other and like, who's the best? I'm the best. No, no, you're not the best. I'm the best. And they start arguing back and forth of who's the greatest and Jesus has to correct them. And then later on in that, they learn about a group of people who are, are doing in Jesus' name these miraculous things. They're actually doing these miracles in Jesus' name, but they're not in the disciples' mind. They're not part of their group. And so they get indignant and they're like, Jesus, we got to stop these people. They're not one of us. And Jesus is like, what are you doing? They're doing stuff in my name. And over and over, Jesus corrects their hearts of pride. And so what I really feel is going on, and actually when I look at our culture around us, what I really think is a warning that we need to be paying careful attention to is the sin of pride when it comes to being a disciple. It's what I like to call puffed up Christianity. Puffed up Christianity does a lot of damage. When I'm a puffed up Christian, a puffed up disciple, and I'm really proud of how much that I know about God compared to you and how much I know about what's in that Bible and my intellectual knowledge really puffs me up or my role here at the church really puffs me up or my talents really puffs me up or my preferences really puffs me up. And pride is exhibited. And for that young disciple, for that new Christian, it does damage. And instead of drawing them closer to Jesus with my flavor, I actually repel them farther away. And you might be listening to me like, ah, is it really that bad? I mean, are you kind of exaggerating? Is it, is it really that much of an issue? I was with a younger person and they had me listen to a song by an artist of our culture named Samia. Before I go into this, I need to preface something. I am not telling you to now Google Samia and listen to her music. Because if you do, you'll hear probably every other word, a curse word or an F-bomb. So before you go and Google that and say, oh, how could Carlos tell us to listen to this? I'm not. I'm not. So write the emails to Charles, not to me. I'm not telling you to do that, but I do think that there are some lyrics in one of her songs that are very important for us to hear, very important for us to know. What you need to know about Sammy is that when she sings and this song, it is a gut-wrenching song. It is this heartbreaking song. It is a song filled with pain. I want to read to you the lyrics. And when you get passive... I like to imagine you listening to worship songs on your iPod. I've never been this bad. Can I tell you something? I've never felt so unworthy of loving. Oh, I forgot to mention to you. Sammy is a former church kid. Sammy actually reflects a lot of the artists of our culture today that grew up in the church. They're kids who went to Sunday school. They're kids who sang worship songs. They're kids who had worship music on their iPads. 
But something happened. And the flavor that they tasted causes them to retreat from God and causes this heartache, causes this gut-wrenching pain. And as I'm listening to this music, as I'm listening to this artist talk about the pain, and not in a way that was critical, not in a way that was anger-filled, just acknowledging like there's pain, there's pain there, and it was from the church. As I'm starting to listen to that, and I'm starting to realize that this heart, this music reflects actually a big part of this younger generation around us, all I kept thinking to myself was, my God, how did we do this? How did we do this? How did we get a younger generation to hear a message of the gospel that they walked away with feeling that they were unworthy of love? That's the exact opposite message of the gospel. It's the exact opposite message of the gospel. The gospel is one that cries out, Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. And what that younger generation is saying is, yeah, I hear you say that Jesus loves you, but I also hear you saying that you don't like me very much. Here's the reality. If I come in contact with someone that God has deemed worthy of love, my only message to them better be, I love you too. That's the flavor that we need as disciples, not a flavor that repels them, but a flavor that draws them closer to Jesus. I'm not talking about a flavor that draws them closer to Calvary Church. That's not the goal. The goal isn't to get them into this building. The goal is to get them to have a relationship with Jesus because everything that they're looking for in this world, everything that they're crying out for, everything that their heart is longing for is found in Jesus. And if our flavor is wrong, then it's not going to draw them to Jesus. It's going to repel them. It's going to repel them. What is our flavor, Calvary Church? What is our flavor? Because Jesus is concerned for the corporate righteousness of his disciples. And that flavor needs to be one that attracts others to Jesus, that not only attracts them to give their life to Christ, but attracts them to grow in that relationship with Jesus and grow as disciples. So Jesus is concerned about our corporate righteousness. But he's not just concerned about our corporate righteousness, he's concerned about our individual righteousness. You see, it's hard to give off the wrong flavor. It's hard to cause someone else to stumble when you're living a life that is radically focused on Jesus. When you're living a radical life of discipleship, radically focused on Jesus, it's hard to make someone stumble. Let's go back into Mark chapter 9. Again, Jesus is using some crazy images. He's using some crazy hyperbole in this. Take a look at this. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands, to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Amen. 
Once again, encouraging words from Jesus. Jesus is using hyperbole again. He's using these drastic images. And what he's calling us to is, he's calling disciples to have a flavor that is pure. A flavor that is pure. Jesus is not calling for self-mutilation. I need to kind of explain that up front. Jesus is not calling for us to literally cut off our hand or cut off our feet or gouge out our eyes. He's not. In fact, this has been something that people throughout church history, if you were to study church history, have actually got wrong at times. There's actually an ancient church history person named Origen who actually took this literally and mutilated his body. Jesus isn't calling us to do that. In fact, uh, that was something that in the Old Testament, the first half of the Bible, was actually very much not okay. Self-mutilation was very much not okay because it actually was part of the worship of the pagan gods, part of the worship of the false gods. In fact, in Deuteronomy 14.1 or 1 Kings 18.28 or Zechariah 13.6, we get these warnings of not doing that. Jesus is not calling on that. In fact, in the Jewish culture, uh, our eyes, our hands, our feet were things that were precious. They were precious gifts from God. Our precious gifts from God. What Jesus is saying is that, is that it's better to sacrifice what is most precious to us than to be separate from God. He's saying that it's better to sacrifice what is most precious to us than to be separate from God. There is nothing that we have, nothing that's worth separating ourselves from God for. <laughs> and Jesus is calling us to the life of obedience, calling us to a life that is pure. And he gives a warning in that calling. He gives a warning in that calling. Did you know that there is no one in the Bible who talks more about hell than Jesus? Did you know that Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, the second half of the Bible, Paul never talks about hell? He never talks about hell. Jesus talks more about hell than he does about heaven. And Jesus uses a picture and a word to describe hell in this passage. He uses a word called Gehenna, which actually is a version of the word Hinnom, which was a real valley. It was a valley at that time in Jesus' time. What it was was the dump. It was where garbage was burned. It was where refuse was born, burned. It was something that the fire was just nonstop. It was a fire that never was quenched. But it also had a very, very dark past. It actually reflected a very, very dark past of Israel. You see, in that valley, hundreds of years before Jesus, when there were kings who were evil, when there were kings who did the opposite of what God intended, when there were kings who led their people into worshiping pagan gods and false gods, this valley was filled with fire. But it wasn't to burn trash. The fire was for human sacrifice, specifically children. It was one of the darkest times, one of the darkest times of Israel's history. And it wasn't until a king named Josiah that this valley was declared unclean. And Josiah streaks across this whole reform in the, in the country, declares this valley unclean, and he turns it into <coughs> the dump. He turns it into a place that people were not going to want to go to. 
and continued to be that way even until Jesus' day. In Jesus' culture, that place was seen as a place of torment. It was seen as a place of uncleanness. It was a despised place. It was, as the verse says, where worms eat but don't die and the fire is never quenched. In fact, in what was called the Talmud, which was like a commentary on the Jewish Bible uh, that they studied at that time, it was where like the, the rabbinical teachings or the religious teachings that kind of looked at the Jewish Bible or looked at the Jewish law, when they looked at this, they looked at Gehenna they looked at it as what was in store for the sinner. It was a place of torment. So does that mean that that's what Jesus is talking about and that there's not a real hell? No. No, Jesus is giving a picture that they would understand. And what he's doing is giving a picture that is so filled with darkness, so filled with torment. Why? Because we cannot grasp We cannot grasp the darkness and torment of hell. We cannot grasp the darkness and torment of being separated from God. Even the worst thing that we could picture cannot compare to that horror and torment of that separation from God, that horror and torment of hell. When Jesus is saying it's better for you to sacrifice anything, it's better for you to sacrifice anything that you consider precious than to be kept from God or be separated from him. He calls on disciples to have a pure flavor. If you want to say it a different way, discipleship is a call to a life of holiness. It's a call to a life of holiness which can only be possible through Jesus. I don't know if you realize this, but my wife has. I'm not holy. I'm not. Neither are you. We are not holy on our own. It is only through the work of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus and the transformative work of the Holy Spirit in us that that can happen. And you cannot choose to follow Jesus without also accepting his call to righteousness. I cannot accept his gift but reject his work in my life. Jesus takes our unholy lives and makes us holy and then calls us to a life of holiness. And if we link that individual righteousness to what happens right before with that corporate righteousness, we understand the linkage. There's a lot at stake here. There's a lot at stake here. We're called as disciples to have a pure flavor. We're called to holiness. We're also called to a flavor that attracts people to Jesus, that doesn't repel them or cause someone to stumble. And then finally, as disciples, we are called to a salty flavor. Salty, I don't mean hers potato chips, but we're called to a salty flavor. Let's go back into Mark chapter 9. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. Salt is an important image that is used in the Bible in relationship to following Jesus. Salt preserves, it purifies, it amplifies. 
What is that whole part, though, at the beginning? Like, salt, everyone's going to be salted with fire. What, what's going on there? Well, what you need to understand is that salt was a big part of sacrifices in the Jewish tradition. If you look at Leviticus 2, you'll look at uh, uh, instructions on how to give grain offerings. And what it was in those instructions were to add salt to the grain offerings. If you were to look at that, it also says, add salt to your sacrifices. Salt was a part of the worship. It was part of the worship and the worship through sacrifice for the people of Israel. And what happens to the sacrifice? It's given to God and then it is burned. In fire. Salt was added to the sacrifice as a symbol of God's enduring covenant. Um, in fact, there, there's what's called the salt covenant in the Old Testament. We don't have time to go through that today. In fact, maybe we'll talk about it Wednesday night when we go further, if you want to come to that. But we don't have time. There's a salt covenant. Salt was a big part of sacrifices, God. In Ezra chapter 6, it talks about storing up salt, storing up salt for the purpose of sacrifices. It was an acknowledgement of this covenant of love with God. It preserved and it purified. Radical discipleship requires those who want to follow Jesus to become a radical, long-lasting, permanent sacrifice to God. What about the rest of those verses? So that's like that purifying with fire part. What about the rest of the salt is good? What else does salt do? It, it, it purifies, it, it, it preserves, but it also amplifies. Salt amplifies the flavor of something, right? If you put salt on a tomato, you do it the right way, what happens? Your tomato is more tomato-y, right? I think that's a word. If you put salt on a potato, what happens to the potato? It's more potato-y. The flavor of disciple when we talk about the salt of the Bible, allows our flavor to be more like Jesus. Allows our flavor to be more like Jesus. And in verse 50, it says to have salt in your life. In the NIV, it says to have salt amongst yourselves, but most of the translations actually says, have salt in you, have salt in your life, be filled with salt. Those are actually better translations there. So that your flavor is more like Jesus. And the proof of that salt, what is the proof of that salt? What does Jesus say? Be at peace amongst yourselves. Be at peace amongst yourself. This peace can only come from having a flavor of Jesus as a disciple. Again, remember what happened in this chapter. Remember how this lesson is grouped by the author Mark. What is going on earlier in the chapter? There is no peace amongst those disciples. They're fighting. They're fighting over their own pride and their own competition of who's better. They're fighting because they're like, oh, I don't like these people who are doing things in Jesus' name, but they're not part of us. You know, we are a select group, so we need to tell them to stop. They're fighting. There is no peace in chapter 9 until Jesus steps in and says, no, 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 no. You got this wrong. One of the proof of having the right flavor as a disciple to be at peace amongst yourselves, to be agents of peace. That a good description of the church in America today? Agents of peace? 
What is our flavor, Calvary Church? What is our flavor? Our flavor better be one that is tastes like Jesus. It tastes like Jesus. So be salty. Not in that way. Be salty. The disciple is meant to have a flavor of salt. How are we to be disciple? Well, we are meant to have the right flavor as a disciple, a flavor that draws people to Jesus, that doesn't repel them away from him, a flavor that is pure, exhibited in a life of holiness, and a flavor that is salty, that is purified as a living sacrifice, amplifying the flavor of Jesus. So how do we live out that life of flavor? Well, we do what Jesus says. We live at peace amongst ourselves. We live lives motivated by love that the fruit of that is being peace amongst ourselves. Because if we're not living out lives of peace, we're not living out lives with the right, right flavor. If we're not living out lives of peace, we just might find out that we are the maple harvest blend. <laughs> and maybe our intentions are good, but the impact won't be. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your love. We thank you so much for your gift of Jesus. Lord, we ask you that you would allow us to have a flavor, a flavor that attracts people to Jesus, a flavor that is holy and pure, a flavor that is salty and causes us to amplify the taste of Jesus to those around us that we would grow as disciples. And because we're growing, those around us who are new in their faith will also grow. But we also ask you for forgiveness for when we don't have the right flavor. We ask you forgiveness for the times when we live out lives of puffed up Christianity. God, as we continue in worship and as we continue to sing and as we continue to worship through our offering. We ask you that what we offer you will be something pleasing to you. That the sacrifice of our lives that we offer to you will be pleasing. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.